One of the most extraordinary roles that an acupuncturist can take is understanding for each individual patient what the menopause means to them and then being able to help reframe that as a really positive experience, you know, looking at what are the benefits. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Is getting lost a failure or an adventure? When you're out of the grasp of the familiar and cycling through new territory, what do you feel? Navigators are considered reliable when they can jibe their chart with the stars and a compass. With a map, you might not recognize the terrain, but you can avoid the feeling of being lost. A good navigator can help get you through the journey. A capable navigator can read the terrain. And when exploring new territory, you need a navigator who knows the stars like her mother tongue, has the capacity to feel into the currents or taste the wind for stories of the uncharted terrain. This is not unlike our work in clinic. Often enough, we have a reliable map and a steady compass. Those are the easy days. Fathoming the depths and knowing where there lay shoals is like walking through a familiar neighborhood. But then there are those patients where we enter uncharted territory. Streams apparently run the wrong way. The shoreline is foreign. You have to feel your way through the shallows and depths. You're drawing a map as you encounter the terrain. This is the work of a charting navigator, of someone capable of working without a map, of being comfortable with the sensation of being lost because there is no lost if you're attending closely to the matters at hand. There is a difference between being lost and not knowing where you are. It's the difference between anxiety and excitement, between wonder and worry. There is a state where the newness of a situation closes down the senses as you strive to find a foothold on the familiar. And then there are those moments where the lack of a reliable foothold brings the freedom to discover with wide open senses. Fear will blot out the reliable markers that could guide the way, while curiosity will extend the senses so that a new terrain will share its secrets with those actively receptive enough to be guided. Charting a new land means being comfortable enough to be present and attentive enough to draw an outline of the unknown. We do this all the time in our clinical work. We follow a map right up to the edge of the world, and it is at that point that our patients need to know if we are reliable navigators of the unknown. Do you have the capacity to work without a map? Are you a reliable companion for a voyage of discovery? There's a story that Ernest Shackleton printed this ad to find a crew for his Antarctica expedition. It read, Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in the event of success. I think this is not unlike the job description of an acupuncturist. We are invited beyond the familiar and beyond the known. It's not an adventure of glory. It's a voyage of discovery. 
These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app slash switch to book a one-on-one -on -one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period 
on your new Jane account. Navigators can find their way in the dark. The currents and tides are their sense organs. The exhale of stars in the night sky, their brethren. Navigators don't experience lost or found as you and I do. They are ever at home in the unfolding entanglements of the present moment. Their sense of time is more textured and surely far more dimensional than that of your average citizen like you or me. It's not that they are brave, but more intensely curious. They are wary of the feeling of, I know this, and enlivened by the unexpected that brings the feeling of, oh, what have we here? In today's conversation with Kath Berry, we explore the transformative gate of menopause, and in doing so, see that this change of life is not so different from other potent moments in our lives and practices where we are invited into a deeper relationship with our own challenges and invitations that each stage of life will bring to us. Our work is steered by the interest we have, and our interests, often enough, arise from our own suffering, difficulties, sadness, and aspirations. We are fortunate to have a reliable set of tools that will allow us to navigate the tides and changes of life, be of service to others, and give us something worthwhile to do so that at the end of the day, we're ready for a good night's rest. Kath has approached menopause the way she's approached other aspects of her career by following an inquiry that had deep personal significance. I hope that you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's get into it. Kath Berry, welcome to Geological. Thank you for having me, Michael. So happy to be here with you in person, via pixels and all that. We have never met personally, but I feel like I know you because you have had your hand in so many different projects over the years. You shared your knowledge. You've shared other people's knowledge. You've been kind of a presence on the internet in a way in the Chinese medicine world. You're like everywhere. You're like that guy in in Ted Laszlo, Roy, what's his name? He's here, he's there, he's everywhere. You're like everywhere. And so I'm so happy to be sitting down with you here today. Hey, so I'm curious most of us have had other careers besides acupuncture before we came to acupuncture. Again, you seem kind of entrepreneurial in what you do. I'm curious to know what you did before you came to acupuncture. Well, I think my answer is actually going to explain how I have been able to be involved in Chinese medicine for so long. And that is that I went straight from high school in Sydney, Australia, into a Chinese medicine degree. So at 18, I was Seriously. tasked with what looked like a telephone book. Everything was in print at that time mm. to be able to choose what university course that I wanted to do. And I thought, being a Virgo, being very thorough, I'll go from A to Z and I'll choose the most appropriate you know, tertiary training for me. And I got you know, as far as acupuncture, which came after accounting, and I saw it was being offered as a combination of history, philosophy, and medicine. And I thought that ticked so many boxes. At high school, I'd been involved in a pilot program through our school, which was looking at teaching teenagers philosophy, Western philosophy. So here I was at 18 thinking, I've, had, I've done two years of training in philosophy for high school. I'd love to continue that through university. 
super interested in medicine and, of course, history is a wonderful combination. So at that time, the offering through the University of Technology in Sydney was this new innovative course which offered this incredible avenue into Chinese medicine. And I remember very distinctly my very first day of university sitting in a lecture theatre and we had Associate Professor Carol Rogers, who's since passed away, tell us as our new recruit, as the course itself was only new to the university as well. So it was a very exciting time for acupuncture in Australia, for it now to be a university Bachelor of Science degree. So there I was with our first recruit of students going through this course and learnt about the Tao and having dappled in Western philosophy. Here I was being exposed to Eastern philosophies and that was really the gateway to understanding that I was on on my path and that here I was in the right place at the right time at 18. So you know, one of the lovely things, of course, is my university studies paralleled technology that while I was there, in this was in 1995, mm. that it was, we saw the birth of the internet, we saw the growth of technology. So I was able to get involved in technology very early on through my associations at the university and thought, this is awesome, using Eastern traditional medicine with modern technology. And that's something that's always, to this day, I'm super excited. And hence, sitting here today, Michael, I often find these moments of thinking, aren't we lucky that we can be sitting here? And I'm in Ibiza, Spain, you're in the United States, and here we are today being able to share a conversation, share some time together. Yes, truly amazing. Wow. I had made the assumption, of course, assumptions are not a great thing to do. You're going to get yourself in trouble, that you had done something else. But no. I mean, I joke about this sometimes, like, oh, yeah, of course you were thinking Chinese medicine in high school. Your high school counselor told you, well, (laughs) actually, that's your situation. That's amazing. It's your first career, kind of first love, right? You're interested in the philosophy. And of course, the philosophy that's inside Chinese medicine is what makes it work. You know, if you understand kind of how the universe ticks, then you can do the medicine. And of course, what was wonderful was that I came into Chinese medicine with the advantage of youthful energy Mm. and also time in abundance. So I had finished my degree at 23 and was very fortunate to be able to think, you know, this is fantastic with these new technologies exist. And one of the first things I did having entered into the workforce was realise how isolating it is to be a solo practitioner after the hub and the excitement of a university environment and all the information you glean from other students, from the lecturers, from books that people are sharing. So one of the very first things I did in 2002 was set up an online forum. It was called the Acupuncture Network and what it was was a platform where practitioners could all talk to each other for free and share case studies, share information. It was a closed platform and it was my way of uniting the profession, certainly, again, Australia being quite geographically remote, that I felt that so much activity was going on in Europe and the United States. So it was really the purpose of the Acupuncture Network all those years ago was an information sharing platform. It then sort of got superseded a few years later by Facebook groups and other technologies which evolved. Mm -hmm. But at that time, it was a really extraordinary program to be part of, which quite selfishly I'd set up just for myself. So I I felt more connected as a clinician to my peers and also to my seniors and supervisors. 
So I was really grateful that I had friends that helped me with that technology. And of course, you know, off the back of that, then moved into other things. But at the same time, concurrently, and I, I sort of smile at sitting here in 2022 that I'm talking about women and aging, because my acupuncture career has actually followed my lifespan in that I went straight from an undergraduate degree in Chinese medicine into a master's looking at acupuncture for drug and alcohol addiction. I was fascinated by how one group of people can take a certain number of drugs and have a great time and the same group take different drugs and have a different experience or people ended up in problems. And when I was 23, a very close friend of mine died of a heroin overdose. And that to me sort of was pivotal in my career choice and thinking I really want to work with people with drug and alcohol problems to understand how non-pharmaceutical medicine like acupuncture can help with mental health, Mm -hmm. with anxiety and depression and with sleeping disorders, all of those side effects of drug and alcohol addiction. So I sort of, my early days, I did a master's degree looking at acupuncture for the side effects of drug withdrawal and we were working in a drug rehab program where the students would go in each week and would deliver acupuncture as part of a hospital-based rehab program. And that was my master's thesis, was this clinical trial that ran, it ran as a clinical trial originally and then stayed as a collaborative program between the university and the hospital. So it was really fun at that stage to be absolutely dedicated to drug and alcohol use, to looking at novel psychoactive substances, looking at heroin, alcohol, cannabis. I was really fascinated by drug and alcohol world. And uh, that was my sort of, I, I guess, my first passion was drug and alcohol medicine. What did you find out with that? I mean, so often we hear about the NADA protocol being used and helpful for dealing with addictions. You know, there's the whole stream of acupuncture that came out of Lincoln Hospital and an amazing history there. But here you are in Australia, interested in this. Sounds like throughout your career, you've kind of scratched your own itch. It's like whatever's got your attention, you've just dived into it. And and found some interesting things. I'm curious to know, just in a nutshell, I mean, I want to get to talking about women's health with you, but in a nutshell, what did you find out about acupuncture in treating drug and alcohol addictions? Anything maybe out of the box that people might not know about that you discovered? Yeah, thank you for asking, Michael, because you're absolutely right. It really was a passion, you know, having lost a very close friend to a drug overdose and, and and actually dealing with some of the social fallout of that, of this idea that the stigma that goes along with somebody who has an addiction problem. So one of the first things I was really keen to do was destigmatize the use of drug and alcohol and really understand for myself what drives addiction. The second component of that was giving students at the university an opportunity to treat really sick people. And, and I mean sick in, in a myriad of pain conditions, mental health, sleep disorders. In a drug and alcohol rehab unit, you really do see people that are at the very end of their healthcare journey. And that our students, I felt that the student training clinic, which was based in the middle of the city and we saw sort of city workers, and I felt that their clinical exposure would be much broader if they were able to see people in this hospital environment. So the program itself was this wonderful training program. But to answer your question around what we learned from that, and I think the greatest asset to come from the program was really understanding the therapeutic relationship. 
understanding what care is all about. And, and just to give you a paint a picture, that in Sydney at the time, a lot of the people that had come into the rehabilitation program had been on what was called a court diversion program. So that's people that have either been caught dealing drugs, on drugs, drug-related crime, so theft or some sort of activity that they were in court and they had the choice of either going to prison or going into a, a residential rehab program. So we're dealing with people that are really struggling in their life. And what we found was that these patients that were in this program, and if you can imagine a little bit like a sort of a high school camp, you know, dorm rooms, fairly old buildings, it was in a beautiful location, but there's sort of a lot of time being spent not doing much because it is a residential rehab program, as in people are staying there for one month. And we would walk in as fresh-faced acupuncture students sitting with these people who for the majority of the last few years of their life, things have gone badly, mm -hmm. notwithstanding that their interactions with their medical practitioners because of their drug-using problems have often been the doctors themselves often withholding medication, for example. So, you know, there's obviously all the issues complicated by doctors prescribing opiates, doctors prescribing benzodiazepines like sleeping pills. So when our, these patients come in contact with the medical system, the treatment that they received was often very negative. And so there we turn up and we say things like, how are you today? How are you feeling? How did you sleep last night? You know, how's your digestion? And what was extraordinary was seeing this therapeutic bond forming so these patients, and what was also really eye-opening is how many patients had come to be in this situation because of a pain problem. So, for example, a motorcycle accident, having an ankle injury, being prescribed opiate medications from their doctor. Two months in, the doctor says, I'm sorry, I've, I've reached my limit as to what I can, can prescribe you. And these patients then going, okay, going onto the street, usually smoking heroin first and then moving from smoking to injecting that that pain pathway, and you know, notwithstanding you know, all of the other sort of psychological and, and social and sexual abuse that had gone on with these patients. So you know, when you're dealing with a whole group of people in pain, then pain medications become a problem and that's how they end up in these situations. And, of course, one of the things we do know now is that acupuncture is fantastic for pain conditions. We understand the, the bioscience behind acupuncture as an analgesia. So here we're able to offer not only a therapeutic consultation, which is really positive, but also a treatment, which is also really effective. So it was a really extraordinary program to participate in. And I'll just give you one more example, Michael, of this program and how it ran where because we would see people once a week over four weeks during their stay, on the first week they'd come in often really agitated and you know, obviously anxious about being in this new environment. One of the things we detected very quickly was that these patients were used to spending a lot of time either scoring or being on drugs. And so here they were in an environment where they were often really bored. So they were drinking huge amounts, 20 cups of coffee a day, not being able to sleep, and then not being able to participate in the groups and feeling really anxious. And so one of the very first things we did is we lobbied to have herbal teas in the cafeteria in the hospital so that, the, that our clients were drinking herbal tea instead of coffee a week later and say, how are you? And they're fantastic. <laughs> so I'm sleeping. What we sort of felt was sleeping and coping and, you know, all the things that come off the back of a good night's sleep. 
I mean, honestly, I can't tell you how many incredible things that were unexpected, you know, just helping people give small amounts of lifestyle advice, what the impact of that was, giving care and how incredibly grateful that was received. Again, giving a treatment that was non-pharmacological. For a lot of these people, they felt that the only way they could cope with pain was through taking some form of drug, some form of medicine, and he were giving them non-pharmacological pain relief. But I really feel like to answer your question thoroughly, it's, it was seeing how important it is to be to be able to offer care to somebody that is in, in pain or suffering. I just want to put a pin in that, to be able to offer care to people that are in pain and suffering. I mean, this is, in a sense, our work, regardless of what people come in with. And your point about the relationship itself, the way that we are with people, that people have an opportunity to, in a sense, be with themselves. They're being invited into a relationship with themselves. They're being invited into a relationship with another person who is curious about them. And partly we're curious because if we can understand to some degree what's going on with them, we do have some fantastic medicine that will draw resources out of them that they didn't know that they had. And it's interesting too, Michael. For me, the challenge, and this is probably a debate that will go on long after my lifetime as a clinician, and that is around how we measure those sorts of therapeutic journeys. Because here I was, I, this was all within the context of doing a master's of research science degree. Mm -hmm. It was, um, I was very excited that this was Australia's first hospital-based clinical trial. It was the first time the university and the hospital had set up a shared research program. So it was really cutting edge in terms of its bureaucracy to have this program set up. But as a scientist looking for ways of measuring how acupuncture was performing in a hospital and then realising that the therapeutic relationship was so important but very difficult to report on, that's where you, know, you start moving into people saying, oh, it's placebo and it's... You know, again, it's the process of lying down, having somebody nice to talk to, having a therapeutic framework for understanding. Of course, you know, one of the lovely things about Chinese medicine is there's nothing that can't be explained with using one of the Chinese medicine theoretical frameworks. And that's what's so lovely and so comforting for a patient who feels like their life or their body or their physiology is in chaos to be able to have a clinician say, oh, no this all fits perfectly within the pattern that you're presenting with. You know, that therapeutic framework in itself is medicine. So I found that experience of sitting as a researcher and sitting looking at trying to eliminate the variables that would be sort of non-measurable non versus as a clinician wanting to really escalate those, wanting to take the best possible care we could for these patients and wanting them to have an a life-changing experience through the use of Chinese medicine within the hospital. You bring up something here that I think is near, well, certainly near and dear to my heart and probably many other practitioners as well. And one of the challenges of living in the modern day with an ancient medicine, or maybe just living in the modern day period, how do we measure what is 
essentially immeasurable. It's like, how do you wrap words around something that words can't quite contain? That's why we have poetry. That's why we have fiction. That's why we have music. It's all kinds of things in life. There's all kinds of moments in life. Not just, they're not things, they're moments. There's moments in life, experiences in life. It's not measurable. It's incredibly subjective. It's life unfolding. It leaves a trace in the world. Yes, those traces can be measured to some degree. Yes. But very quickly, we're standing at this really curious edge. Often in my clinic, have patients, they'll come back, I ask how they're doing, and they'll say, well, I don't know if I'm making this up, but I'm sleeping better. I don't know if it's really true that my pain is gone or if it's just in my head. I hear this all the time. And it raises the question for me of, Okay, the body or the mind can make the body ill. We know that. That's called hypochondria. Or the mind can make the body well. We call that placebo. You know, and from the Western point of view, we're kind of looking askance at both of those. Like, yeah, well, that's not real. It's kind of in the mind. Well, I have the question, what is going on with the mind? that it has such a profound effect on the physiology. And just talking with you today, hearing you describe your experience of working with the people in the addiction center, the treatment center, and how your presence and curiosity, it like changes the flavor of the water, makes it a whole different experience. It's not to take away from all the things that we do that are very incredibly physical sort of substrate that they land on and work with. You know, there's ways of working with the body where we are really dramatically physically changing it with herbs, for instance, even acupuncture. And yet there's this other part of us that is very much involved. Michael, I'm a big believer in clinicians being very careful what they say to their patients around, in Chinese medicine specifically, because as I mentioned earlier, we do have so many frameworks that we can explain illness and wellness. And the benefit of that is being able to coach our patients into understanding how they can get well. But I also am concerned at times when we do bandy terms around like, oh, well, that's because your liver's not functioning or there's these things going on. Or I think there's an element of Chinese medicine that can be very dangerous if shared and not explained appropriately to our patients. And I feel like this is something that we're not taught necessarily in college, that it's something you learn very quickly is if your language that you use with your patients is in fact my feeling, the most powerful medicine that we have and giving the patient hope that their condition will improve, that they can take on a more autonomous role, that they are in charge of their health is in fact the greatest medicine that we can perform or participate in with our clients or our patients. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. 
The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Agreed. Completely agreed. I can remember in my early years of practicing, because I didn't really know how to talk to my patients that well. And so I would, they'd ask me about what's going on and I kind of give them Chinese medicine 101, which would confuse them. But beyond that, exactly this, it's like, well, there's a thing with your liver. And they're like, my liver, what's wrong with my liver? And, and then I'm trying to explain how their liver is not their liver. And I realize I sound like a complete idiot. I sound like an idiot, and now they're also thinking about their liver in a way that they can't not think about their liver, because I already said it. It's like saying, don't think of a purple elephant. Oh, damn, I just thought of a purple elephant. And it took me a long time to realize that it was my job as a practitioner to understand the medicine well enough that I could think it in my own mind. But when they ask what's going on, I could tell them a story that they could understand within their own experience and kind of tailored to who they are to understand what's going on. And that worked much better. And it, it didn't bring in that, that whole thing of, oh my God, I got a problem with this organ. And I completely agree with you. There are things that we say in kindness or because we don't know what else to say, but it actually takes people in the wrong direction, being careful with language. I've had a number of conversations with Nick Pohl and Margot Rossi here on the podcast and other people as well about the therapeutic, attentive, mindful use of language. I'm curious to know what else that you've learned about that because mm. it seems very much front and center for you. It, it really is. And I, I likewise, when I first started working in clinically, would often do, I do a lot of tuna and cupping. My treatments are very physical. And I would say to people as they were leaving is, listen, you're probably going to feel like you've been hit by a Mack truck for the next few days, and then you're going to feel great. And I realized, of course, as I was priming them to walk away and feel dreadful before they felt well. So, you know, just silly things of realizing that we program the patient's outcome with the language that we're using all the time. And the most important aspect we can be doing is I constantly say to my clients is you're doing really well you know, just by virtue of being here rather than picking apart the things of their diet that they should be doing better. It's always looking, let's look at all the good behaviour that you're doing. And it's really I find that the best starting point is to reflect back to the patient where I see that they're at in terms of their, their general health and their general wellness 
And, you know, rather than the story being you're sick and I'm going to fix you, it's very much that you're taking great steps to get even better and to really maximise where you're at right now. And certainly something that I'm seeing more and more in my practice, how the benefit of that positive reinforcement, the benefit of, and the other thing as well, which I've really started to do is when I talk to my clients around their diet and lifestyle is asking them, what do you think you should be doing that's different? Rather than me just tell them, it's like I've come to realise, yeah, just, you know, what do you think you should be doing if if you're not well? Well, they already have the answers themselves. Or not. For the most part, they often do. This is the interesting thing. A lot of the times people are aware of the food that's causing them problems or the behaviour that's causing them the pain, you know, the whatever sort of stimulus is creating the tension or the friction in their system. For the most part, I think people can identify and then more often than not, it's sort of shepherding them into the new information or even just providing where they might find that information. But I've always been shocked at how much clients themselves have their own answers. I agree. And I'm of two minds. I'm going to come back to the part about where they already know the answer, because I think that's true. And I love the question that you just ask about, you know, what do you think you should do? What do you think would be good to eat? Because I've had patients that go, well, I should do more juicing. I drink a smoothie every morning, but maybe I should drink three of them. And so sometimes people have an idea of what they think is healthy, but they're not quite in touch with how it actually makes them feel. And so they're doubling down on this idea that, oh, I should be doing X, Y, Z. So sometimes that happens. But I think often you're absolutely right. People do know. And the reason that they know, and this is one of the beauties of Chinese medicine. This is where we're, we're like far ahead of Western medicine. We have this idea of Zheng Qi. We have this idea that there is something that is upright, it's proper, it knows how to work, it knows what's good for us. With Chinese medicine, acupuncture in particular, we can take where there are strengths in the body and bring those to bear in the areas where there are deficiencies and we can help people. So there's this idea of Zheng Qi, there's this idea that there's something about us that is right. And when I first started practicing, I thought that was a lovely and poetic idea. And as I've gone through the years of practicing, I realize it's a deep strength that people have. And if I can see the Jung in them as a practitioner and help them connect with the Jung in them, not just that I see it, but help them connect with it themselves, like through the questions that you were just asking, I think it's incredibly powerful. I love that. Thank you, Michael. I'm going to take that too into my clinical practice now as well. I think it's a wonderful framework to be able to use to explain it to people. And, uh, you know, certainly it's one of the things I think you're absolutely right about there being a lot of misinformation around what health looks like. And the Chinese medicine framework, the Yang Sheng framework of the mm-hmm. activity that we can do in terms of the composite information we can give around lifestyle is probably the most powerful thing that we can offer. And that's certainly something that people like Peter Dedman and his Yang Sheng book, which I've now read you know, sort of cover to cover, and I sit there and often pull it off my shelf and go through, through with my patients and just say, look, here's the science. This is the evidence base around why eating well, sleeping well, exercising, mindfulness, you know, keeping emotions in check 
being in good and healthy relationships, having clear boundaries, all these wonderful things which can all fall into the Yangsheng principles. Absolutely. It's great medicine. So there's so much I want to talk with you about. And I want to swing this around here because I know that you're doing a lot of work with, with menopause and aging. And Chinese medicine, I don't have to tell you and I don't have to tell the listeners, we all know that Chinese medicine is this like fantastic treasure house for women's health. It's so amazing what we can offer. And I know that in my experience, for certain menopausal conditions, I feel like I can get some pretty good results. But then there's women that I have in my practice and they're still taking a small amount of hormones 20 years after menopause because it's the only thing that keeps them from sweating at night. And I'm already bald, which is good because otherwise it would make me tear my hair out. <laughs> so I'm really curious to know what you're discovering. Yeah, thank you. And it's funny now at, at uh, you know, we're in the year 2022 and I'm sitting here as a, a 46-year-old woman and, and sort of being able to look at my Chinese medicine career and say as a young person I was really interested in drug and alcohol. In my 30s I was really interested in pregnancy and childbirth. And now that my kids are sort of eight and nine, I've now moved into now I'm really interested in menopause because it's going on around me and also feel that it's an area that, to be perfectly honest, as a woman, I've been terrified of. And I look at my own experience with childbirth and the fact that there was so much information around around birthing and, and how childbirth is portrayed in the media. And then as a Chinese medicine practitioner to have approached my pregnancies, I had two kids both the pregnancies and the birthing of the children. And it was a phenomenal experience, phenomenal, super positive. The, both the pregnancies and the birthing experiences were just incredible. And I felt so privileged to have this body of Chinese medicine knowledge as an individual in that situation. And so, you know, here I am now in my mid-40s and, and want, looking at menopause in very similar light and thinking, hang on a minute, We've got all this information around how what menopause is about for women, what it, that women will suffer, and that you know that there's just so much misinformation out there, and so a lot of the work that we've been doing, there's sort of been a team of us doing work around looking at menopause, and and really it comes down to again the reframing of information, that making menopause a really positive experience for women, rather than making it something which is going to be a negative experience for women transitioning through the menopausal phase. So probably the most extraordinary discovery is the role of exercise in the transitional, the menopausal period. Within that, it's looking at how menopause can be directly affected by all of the activity that goes in the 10 years previously. So listeners today will be nodding their heads knowing, of course, that it's the lifestyle factors that will determine how somebody transitions through menopause. So for the most part, I, I believe that menopause starts at 40, that it's while 51 is the national average age that a woman will have reported menopause, which is the technically menopause is 12 months 
after the final menstrual period. So what that really means, it's one of the few conditions that you get diagnosed with 12 months retroactively from when it's actually happened. So it means it's a very sort of inaccurate science that women are told to measure the last day of their previous menstrual period, and that becomes a 12-month marker as to when their menopause officially starts. Of course, women do get spot bleeding, and there can be a whole host of reasons why that number gets thrown out. But really, if we look at 51 is around that average, then really the starting point, as I say, that women should be preparing for their menopause on their 40th birthday. And of course, this is now what Chinese medicine practitioners can educate their patients about, is all of the things which can lead into a very healthy menopause. You said something that just rings me like a bell, because I think it it applies to menopause, it applies to other things as well. And that is taking and reframing something that is generally seen as negative and looking at what might be positive. Looking at, of course, there is something that is lost with menopause, just like there is something that is lost with puberty. There's an innocence. You fire up a person's sexuality in puberty, and life is really different. It like messes with your attention, and it, it infuses your life in so many ways. Life-changing, you know, dramatic. And there's something that's lost. There's something gained and there's something lost. And I think we see this more in traditional societies to some degree, that especially with women, as they go into menopause, they've gone from being this productive in a sense of producing children to now they have this capacity for wisdom. They have a capacity for being in the world and in a way that is fundamentally different. So I hear you talk about this, and what else do you have to say about that? You're absolutely spot on, Michael. It's This is the role of the Chinese medicine practitioner, being able to help women see that, that those menopausal years are the ones that they are most powerful, most influential. And there's a wonderful uh, theory which is evolving within the scientific community as to why is it that women, humans, go through menopause, that there's only a handful of mammals that go through menopause. The others are whales. So that one of the discoveries is that looking at our whale mammals, how menopause looks like in the animal world. And there are very few other animals that have a long lifespan after their reproductive years. And what is floating around is a theory called the grandmother hypothesis. And this is that whale pods, that the older whales go through menopause so that they are not reproducing offspring that compete with their existing, that they're not continuing to produce offspring that are competing with their existing offspring, and that they move into being tribal leaders, that they are the ones responsible for showing the younger generation where to fish and how to protect themselves. So the grandmother hypothesis is existing Uh, current scientific circles to also explain why humans go through menopause as this role of being a caretaker within the community. And I think that's just such a wonderful analogy of really coaching women rather than it being the loss of the reproductive years, so much of the gain of the, the wise and influential person within that community, one that will keep them safe and well nourished. 
And I think maybe women in particular, maybe more than men, I think men get a little softer as we hit andropause. Women get kind of tougher in a way. And yeah, that role of caretaker of the community. And it's not just my offspring, it's a larger community. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, when you look at, and think about like the women that have been heads of state, right? Often in that grandmother position, in a sense. It is. It's wonderful. It's wonderful when you see women stepping into their power. Mm -hmm. And I draw on the work of people like Julian Scott, who has very much shares the original Dr. Shen principle of the gates of life. And the gates of life, as you already mentioned, the puberty being the first gate of life. For women, there's a second gate, which is childbirth and child rearing. Then there's the menopause and this idea, and then the final gate being death, one that we, we can't come back and talk about. So the puberty, the childbirth, and menopause belonging to a spectrum of evolution, of, of personal development. And within that Dr. Shen theory, that illnesses which may have arisen during puberty that may have continued through the 30s and into the 40s can actually be thrown out at menopause. It's, a, it's an opportunity for this major physiological shift. And also from a psychological point of view, it's an opportunity for women particularly to re-identify themselves outside a mother role that they can sort of, you know, gaining independence, gaining this sense of having a whole new chapter, a whole new lease on life. What are those new interests that come along? So it's certainly a, for the most part, the women that go into menopause with a positive attitude about ageing, about feeling good about themselves, what they've accomplished. For example, there's women that have had children, if that's been a positive experience, will experience menopause very differently than women who haven't been able to conceive and who may have wanted to, that there might be a lot more feelings of grief and psychological trauma attached to the end, end of the menstrual cycle. This is, again, one of the most extraordinary roles that an acupuncturist can take is understanding for each individual patient what the menopause means to them and then being able to help reframe that as a really positive experience, you know, looking at what are the benefits. And you know, what, one of the other things we need to be mindful of is that menopause doesn't occur in isolation for the most part, it can be a time for women of going through a divorce. There can be empty nest syndrome. Other concurring type life events are, you know, caring for or grieving an elderly parent. So there's often menopause itself is not simply a physiological condition, but it's also the psycho-emotional aspect of what else is going on in a person's life at that time. It's a really, they call it a transitional experience and it really is a transitioning into a whole new way of life transformative and it is fraught with opportunity i'm hearing you say it's fraught with opportunity fantastic opportunity there's like julian scott says there's illnesses that can be thrown off we all know women that have had migraines up until menopause and then it's like yeah they don't bother me so much anymore and sometimes digestive issues yeah it doesn't bother me so much after menopause so we've seen that, we know that, and it, it's helpful to hear it spoken out loud, that this could be one of the opportunities of this time. Also fraught with peril, right? You're in that sandwich generation between your children and aging parents. And, and then there's that whole thing that we have, 
in our society with, well, you know, young women and pretty women is, are the women that get attention. And they're the, if you don't have that, like, what are you? And especially if you played on that and you've leaned on it, what happens when that fades? And how do you take on a new role that might be very different? It's like, I'm thinking archetypes in my head. You know, on one hand, and this is, uh, I'm just trying to make a point. You may have the temptress on one side, and then you've got the stateswoman on the other side. Those are really different roles, right? And so, yes, as, as we're having this conversation, it, it makes sense to me that there's this fantastic opportunity, fraught with opportunity, fraught with peril, so how do you navigate that? How do you help the women that you're treating and seeing navigate through that? That very much circles back to our previous conversation, Michael, as you find it within them, you know, how the thread which is the most powerful within that person, and then you do everything you can to make sure that that is what stays their North Star. You know, really helping women to dig deep into to their passion what drives the most, their sense of identity. And it's very much around making sure that as a clinician that you're there making, giving them the, every opportunity to see the empowering part of themselves. I so often see this in my clinic, that people will have something that's bothersome to them and they think it's a problem. But sometimes it's actually their superpower. It's something about them that it's quite right about them. It is their Jung Chi, and yet they have a bad opinion of it. Of course, you can't talk people out of anything, but sometimes we can help them see resources that they didn't know that they had. What are some of your favorite ways with acupuncture or herbs helping people get in touch with those other resources? That's a wonderful question. I feel that that's, again, having the client themselves identify for themselves what they're doing that's working, you know, making sure that they sort of list the types of activities. Often people will look at all the things they should be doing, whereas one of my favourite things is say, let's talk about what you're currently doing and maybe what you could be doing more of. But what, one of the lovely things about acupuncture particularly, I'm, I'm not a herbalist, although I work very closely with my colleague Natalie Chandra Saunders who she fills in those clinical gaps in the work that we do. And as part of that process, that what I love about acupuncture is it does give us a framework for being able to explain to people what's happening physiologically for them. And it's wonderful when you have a client, when you can sort of say, look, we're going to be looking at balancing your energy. We're looking at, looking at seeing how your system is going to function better. And I often say to my clients that the Chinese herbs are like the fuel in the factory, but the acupuncture itself is going to make the factory work more efficiently so that that framework helps people understand how acupuncture can be benefiting them, how coming for regular treatment benefits them. But the for menopausal women specifically, it's the lifestyle advice which really counts. It's making sure, so for example, alcohol consumption is a really big one. That we're just seeing that it's just alcohol and illicit drug taking and menopause don't mix. And for a lot of people that can be a sense of sadness of thinking, well, going out and drinking and socialising is a really big part of enjoying life and having to sort of start to look at how the negative impact of alcohol on a person's menopausal experience 
you know, I mentioned it earlier, exercising being a really critical one. But the other big one, which which is one that I was shocked by when I came across it was also the role of sex. I'm looking at whether masturbating, how that affects somebody going through menopause, that there's a real aspect of menopause, which is if you, you know, you've got to use it or lose it. And so a lot of the physiological experiences of your genital disorders can be mitigated by the, the women that seem to be sexually active have a much better experience through menopause than those that aren't. And it moves into little areas, as you mentioned, about feeling attractive, still being able to connect with people on that level. And and so I, I often talk about sexercise with my clients. I'm saying, look, it's really <laughs> important. Get your regular sexercise in. <laughs> so whether that's with a partner or whether that's with yourself, I think that's something we really need to be talking about. And, Michael, I don't know whether this is going to shock you, but there doesn't appear to be very much information on menopausal women and masturbating. It seems to be an area that uh, that scientists don't seem to want to devote much time or attention to. And I think that's probably because we're dealing with two major taboos locking together, both women's sexuality, women masturbating, and menopause aren't necessarily very common topics to be talking about, but it's something that I'm really keen to sort of explore that narrative and saying to women that this is a really important part of healthy ageing is also your relationship yourself, your sexual relationship with yourself and your sexual relationship with others. I live in the United States. The United States is a somewhat puritanical country. It was founded on those principles. Of course, we have you know, lots of different ways of thinking about sex and sexuality and gender for that matter these days. So there's that. Sexercise. For some reason, I'm imagining, oh my God, this is hilarious. I'm imagining Jane Fonda. Remember back in the 80s, Jane Fonda was like really big on, um, uh, was it aerobics or something? It was like some kind of exercise, right? And there's a TV show these days. There's a TV series called Grace and Frankie. Are you familiar with Grace and Frankie? Have you watched it at all? I love Grace and Frankie. My wife loves Grace and Frankie. For those of you that are not familiar with Grace and Frankie, this is actually germane to the point. It's Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, two hilarious women. And the setup is uh, their husbands, turns out they're gay, so they divorce the wives and the husbands get married. And now there's Lily and Jane living together, Grace and Frankie living together, and they couldn't be more different. But they're always coming up with these like crazy, amazing things. And one of them that they come up with is these sex toys for women with arthritis. It's like you can't use <laughs> can't use a younger woman's sex toy. You need sex toys for for older women. And it's funny to me. It's a hilarious show, and yet there it is. This is one of the things I love about our medicine is that you can come up with something. And I think you're really onto something here. Oh my goodness. Good thing that you've got a background in being entrepreneurial because this is, this is, I'm curious to see what you do with this. But there it is. I mean, you'll see things in the culture. You'll see there's people, you know, you'll just be at a party. They'll, they'll be talking about something and you'll go, oh, that kind of fits with that. So, the sex life of a woman going through and after menopause. Yeah, that usually doesn't get talked about 
because usually those women are seen as not being sexual in our society. That's right. One of the things, Michael, years ago when I first started being interested in menopause as a medicine was to join the International Medicine Menopause Society. And they have a wonderful clinical handbook, which I recommend to anybody, the IMS Menopause Clinical Handbook. And I, if you look in the sort of the, the list of symptoms that a women may experience in menopause, and it's terrifying. <laughs> it is awful. And of course, a lot of it is urogenital. Mm-hmm. So looking at things like vaginal atrophy and what happens during the menopausal years is that the vagina, which is a tunnel, which is a effectively a, a cavity, becomes not only shorter but also more narrow so that the muscular tissues of the vagina start to change and they, it shrinks and atrophy meaning to sort of become firm and fixed. So things like, hence the sex exercise, is you know, realising that these are muscles that if they're not used and neglected is that shit goes wrong, <laughs> you know, like in all parts of the body. Mm-hmm. Is it, you use it or you lose it. And, of course, once things lose circulation, blood flow, lubrication, once things do go wrong, it's very difficult. It's much more difficult to repair something that's not working than to prevent any sort of, I guess, misuse or, or deterioration in those tissues. So it's very much you know, sort of saying, and I do have these conversations with friends all the time, is use it or lose it. Get on to your sexercise. You know, keep active. In all aspects of life, it's when I look at encouraging women to do aerobic activity, I do love that Jane Fonda can be the pinup girl for her 1980s leotard activity as well as her that she has through this show Grace and Frankie sort of certainly heralded the use of sex toys in older women. So, um, yeah, it's a really, but again, these really honest and really frank conversations with patients are the things that change their life. But it's you know being able to have that conversation, being comfortable having those conversations, and then being able and then being able to offer advice and saying, look, this is something really important that you need to be aware of the consequences of behaviour. Again, downstream consequences. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Sure, we all know this, just plain old physical muscle. As we age, 
it atrophies. Even if, if you're staying on it, it atrophies. Everything kind of falls down over time. How do you find the women that you're working with receiving this, this idea, this advice? To be honest, I would love it because we're having conversations that are private, they're confidential, and they're about things that are really bothersome. So it's for a lot of women, it's losing their libido is a really, the, I cannot tell you, Michael, how many times I've heard the expression dead from the waist down. Mm. It's just this way that women describe their libido and, and so, you know, again, being able to have really honest conversations about with women around what's really bothering them the most. Because, of course, libido isn't, isn't simply sex. It's about how they relate to their partner, how they feel in themselves, if they're single, you know, whether they're, whether they're seeking a partner, what that relationship, what a new relationship might look like if somebody doesn't find themselves sexually attractive or any sexual arousal. So that the implications of you know, somebody's sex life is, is huge in terms of their quality of life. So it's a, being able to have really frank and honest conversations with women. And I say that too, that's, you know, we're talking now about sex, but also for some women talking around menopause, around wanting you know, those women that have wanted children and haven't been able to either conceive, um, women that may have wanted children and, and had miscarriages, that menopause really can be almost a, an echo trauma from years previously. So the role of the clinician being as we spoke about at the very beginning of today's conversation around how you show up, around the role that you play in being an active listener and offering that care. Yes, and this really touches in on our pattern differentiation. It touches in on how we look at the five phases. If a woman hasn't been able to conceive or wanted children didn't have it. Okay, so now you hit menopause and oh, there's your grief. There's that excessive metal that might show up in all kinds of areas of life. And I'm just thinking back to this exercise. Boy, this is a trickier conversation for men to have with their women patients. So I just want to put a pin in that. I see what you're talking about, and I think that makes a lot of sense. We could just think about it in terms of, well, blood and chi. What moves blood and chi? Well, an orgasm is a great way to move blood and chi, I mean, through the whole body in a delightful way. I could see this conversation being a lot easier between one patient and one practitioner. You know, for men, I think we have to be a little more careful. Any suggestions for us men that are treating women and how to? approach that subject? I'm going to ask you that question, Michael, because I just realized that you're absolutely right that the conversations I am having with my clients are probably very different. And I would love to hear from you and your experience, how you've approached that in all aspects of women's care. Well, okay. That's a great question. So I'm always very, very aware of that male-female dynamic that's going on. I do my utmost in all my work, male or female, or non-binary for that matter, to connect to the person, to find a way of creating a sense of safety and a sense of engagement and be connected with humor and be connected through sadness. I'm going to call it an appropriate emotional connection with our patients. 
I think that's really, really important. So I, I'm going to share with you, you know, as a male practitioner, I'm always extremely cautious. So let me give you an example of where I'm cautious. When I was in acupuncture school, we, we had people, we put them in these like pajamas with back that open so you could palpate and this and that. Um, and they were very loose fitting. So you could like pull the pant leg up to get to wherever you needed or easily expose the belly, whatever. And I remember having some of those when I first got out of acupuncture school. And all it really did was increase my load of laundry that I was doing. I very quickly got rid of those. And if I, you know, if a woman's wearing tight pants and I need to get up around the knees, I would just pull out a towel and I'd say, here, throw this over you. I'm going to step out of the room, throw this over you. I'll be back in a moment, right? And just have her drape herself. I'm a little bit of a wise ass. And I use that to some degree in creating connection with a little bit of humor with my patients. And so the wise ass in me wants to say, you know, I'm the only guy in town that can say, take your pants off and I'll be right back. Here's a, you know, and I don't because it could be easily misconstrued. Even though I might have a great relationship with my patients and be able to joke about all kinds of things, I don't joke about that, right? There are limits. And so I'm aware as a man, okay, talking with a woman about their sexuality. The honest answer, Kath, is I'm not sure how I would bring this up. I don't think I would unless they did. If they somehow brought it up or if it, it somehow seemed germane or I would approach it gingerly and tenderly and make sure, I would attend to the feeling in the room, definitely. So if they're talking about feeling dead from the waist down, it's like, okay, well, we can talk about that. We can explore that. Not necessarily go right to, are you doing sex exercise, but you know, explore what that means for them. And then maybe they bring up what their sex life is like or not like. And then we can have a talk about Muscle atrophy. The shine is a muscle. Well, you're exercising your biceps. You know, you might want to exercise your vagina. It's a good question. It's a great question. And I don't have great answers for it at the moment other than to say it's an area worth exploring and an area worth making sure you've got your good clinical listening skills down pat. And I, I think, Mike, I mean, you've answered that beautifully, in, even in that brief explanation of your biceps and your vagina muscles. I think you've absolutely nailed that. And I would, you know, encourage male practitioners listening today to start practicing having those conversations in a way that's very straightforward, that isn't nuanced in anything that would be uncomfortable in the same way that male practitioners can ask women about their menstrual cycle and their menstrual flow and is it dark and is it heavy and is it clotted, that those same conversations extend into how's your, are you happy with your sex life? How are you feeling about that? You know, how is everything, you know, is there anything you feel uncomfortable about or anything concerning? And one of the lovely things, of course, is just being, even having access to the information to be aware that clinicians, the more acupuncturists that understand what women are going through in menopause, the more likely we are as a profession to be able to shepherd women through a much happier, you know, peaceful, more easy transition through menopause. 
that uh, you know one of the biggest things that that goes on at the moment for a lot of women, and I see this in you know, back to my mention of childbirth. I'm going to go into childbirth and I'm not going to take any medication. I'm not having an epidural because childbirth is natural. And I think, crikey, we've evolved. And there's an element of, of course, it would be wonderful if all women could have a natural birth. However, that childbirth, you know, is potentially dangerous. And, you know, we have evolved medicine to be able to protect women and babies from the birthing experience if necessary. And therefore, we do have pain medication available. We do have a whole range of treatments that can help ease the suffering of women in that process. And I feel very much the same with menopause, that there has been a backlash against hormone replacement therapy. And my personal view is that there's a role for that within all forms of care and that, that some women are suffering unnecessarily mm-hmm. because they, they refuse to take any form of medication. And I think, you know, have we swung too far one way we need to help shepherd our women back to being a little bit more balanced and uh, you know ultimately saying look if you're really suffering then you know it's something to see a gynecologist and and maybe look at having a small dose of hrt to get through this period to ease that suffering to cope better sleeping well eating well making sure that the i see menopause a little bit like a life raft you know an inflatable and one of these inflatable blow-up toys you get at the beach or at the, in a swimming pool. Oh, inflatable blow-up toy. Yeah. <laughs> and so the, the image of this inflatable toy being the by, the, by the time it sort of started, the, you're trying to stand up on a, like a surfboard on this inflatable thing that's, isn't, that's, by the time you start to get out of balance, it's a little too late. That's when the HRT might come in. Mm-hmm. But the, you know, the best way to keep that sort of device as inflated as possible to make it as stable as possible is all the preventative stuff. It's all the lifestyle, the Yangshan principles of the the eating well and exercising moderately, and all the the you know sleeping. I cannot tell you what the discoveries that we made while writing this book around sleep, and looking at you know sleep being the greatest form of anti-Alzheimer's treatment that we know. <laughs> you know that's hands down. If you want to present, prevent Alzheimer's later in life, then it's looking at sleep patterns all the way through life. That's sleep and its ability to restore the body, as we know in Chinese medicine. But what I love is the science is catching up. The evidence base is catching up. And, of course, Michael, you you can hear me talking about all this advice for patients. It's all the stuff, the easy stuff. You know, it's the stuff that we do well as clinicians is just reminding people why a good diet, why sleeping well, why, you know, a healthy sex life, why mindfulness and keeping in the emotions in check and, uh, you know, connecting with friends and doing something you love is, is a form of medicine. You know, being passionate and engaged is great for the mental health. It's great for Alzheimer's prevention. So, you know, there's so many aspects of Chinese medicine which I feel that is now just being simply confirmed by our, our scientific rigorous studies Doing what you love as a form of medicine. I love that. And I think it's true because it brings in the joy of the heart. It brings in the imperial fire. And if that burns well, everything else is going to go pretty well too. It makes a lot of sense. I want to come back for just a moment 
because I think this is important, and it's on my radar now because of this conversation. The difference in talking to a woman about her menstrual period and talking to a woman about her sexuality. So by and large, most men don't want to know anything about the woman in their life's menstrual period. And as a man working with women, that I'm interested in their period, that I'm comfortable talking about it, that the character of it is useful and maybe helps normalize their experience in some way. I think that's very, very powerful. And talking about the period, it's not talking about sexuality. I mean, it it could a little bit. I mean, we're talking about girly bits there, but talking about sexuality because of traumas, because of male-female relationships, because of the world that we live in, as a man, you have to be way more careful. It can go off the rails really quickly. What you say could be taken wrong, depending on the woman's experience. And let's face it too, some men are predators. And sometimes you just have two people in a room and they're both a little bit uncomfortable and not sure what to do with the conversation. So I think that's also in the sexual conversation. And I'm not saying not have that conversation. I'm very much thinking I would love to be able to have that conversation with my patients. I'm not sure how to do it yet. And I really appreciate you bringing this up and normalizing this. And for all of us to recognize that this is an aspect of menopause, unspoken, but it's definitely there. I'm I'm hearing you say in your experience, this is something that's really important with women. And, And because it's been hidden, it's even harder to talk about. So here's to having more conversations about that important aspect. So thank you. Thank you very much for that. Really opens up a an area that I am looking forward to figuring out. How do I have these conversations? Because my suspicion is the conversation arises naturally and it's initiated by something that the patient has to say. And I think if we follow that, if it's initiated by the patient and we follow that with respect, I think we can do okay. I would say too, Michael, that certainly having a greater understanding of what women are going through, so having the platform of knowledge to feel really solid, so just being scientific about it, you know, understanding what is happening from a physiological point of view, from an endocrinological point of view for women, that clinicians can hold that space and just reflect back, like, this is what is happening and why this is what we can do together. This is how I'm going to help you. And that's certainly been the pivot point of the research that we've been doing for a number of years and certainly pulling together all the information we can around menopause to help inform clinicians so that practitioners are aware of what is going on and then what can be done. And I feel like for many men particularly listening today, you know, it's learn about it because it's fascinating and that those relationships with patients and being able to engage somebody and really change their life you know, in the way that we can do with women suffering all other forms of conditions, to be able to have such a positive impact on women's life is really the essence of what we do in our clinical work every day. So, you know, I, I would encourage anyone listening today is to upskill 
learn more. There's a wonderful book written by Brian Grossom about menopausal hot flushes um, that's available, you know, that, that just learn what you can and that way that gives you the confidence to have those conversations and hold that space and be that person, be that practitioner. There's such a huge aspect of medicine that is overlooked and I feel that let's shine a light on that. Let's bring it to the forefront and let's get really good at it. We know women are seeking complementary and alternative medicine. We know that it's effective. We know Chinese herbal medicine combined with acupuncture is one of the greatest forms of treatment. So therefore, you know, let's turn and face towards these women and open open our arms and offer to help in a way that we know that we can. Yes, well, and I suspect it will make us better husbands and brothers as well. Indeed, indeed. And Michael, thank you for sharing with our audience today that, you know, just as, as you say, that they are difficult conversations to have. And, you know, it takes a bit of practice and it takes that reading the room. I think you've said that perfectly of knowing how to hold the space and knowing, you know, at what point, what information can you springboard off to the next question and it all sort of fitting within that absolute professionalism of just being a, a fantastic all-round clinician. Well, I think it's also kind of built into the medicine that we do. We are always looking for our patients to tell us in some way that makes sense to our Chinese medicine mind, here's what I need, right? I mean, we do our pattern differentiation and all that, and but I find for myself, I'm waiting to hear, I'm waiting for something to resonate where the patient is actually saying, this is what I need. Of course, they're not going to say, this is what I need. Actually, they do say, this is what I need, now that I think about it. They don't think they're telling me that, but because of the way that I think about Chinese medicine, they might say something at some point and I go, oh, yeah, there it is. This is the place where we begin. Here's where the path opens. So yes, that kind of skill we can also bring to this. Kath, anything else that you would like to share with us about the work that you're doing right now? Just, I'd like to acknowledge just what an exciting area of medicine it is to be in. One of the things that is most challenging for us now as clinicians is we're dealing with a female aging and endocrinology all mixing. And we're looking at women who you know, we really haven't had the the female contraceptive pill in circulation for long. It's the 1960s. So there's only really been 60 years of this particular medication that's been used for female, you know, managing female reproduction. We've also got IVF, which has come into our medicine in the last sort of 40 years. And so all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're now sort of on what I think would be new frontiers of Chinese medicine, of medicine itself and then Chinese medicine role. So, you know, my parting message for anyone listening today is be part of that changing movement. I mean, you know, be part of that building the new knowledge and, uh, you know, really sort of step into those challenging conversations, step into that sort of unknown area of medicine because it's fascinating. And, of course, you know, 50% of the population will go through menopause. So it makes great sense to get really skilled in that area. Great. I have thoroughly enjoyed our time today. You've given me some new perspectives to look through and some uh, new challenges to take on. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. There is so much I enjoyed about this conversation, but the thing that really sticks with me is that menopause is a transformative gateway 
It's an opportunity to throw off a set of problems, to set aside a way of life and embrace the kinds of loss that are a kind of a gain if you'll open to the opportunities ahead instead of lingering in a past that's more and more ghost-like with each passing day. Transformation, so often symbolized as a butterfly emerging from its chrysalis, fails to take into account for the utter disintegration of one form in reconstitution into another. Staying present in the process of everything falling apart, even as it is simultaneously falling together, is not for the faint of heart. It requires surrender, trust, and courage, and a recharting of the map of your world. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.